This is the Scottish Football Citizen, bringing you the best of Scottish football from the past. I'm Andy Kerr, and this week I'm joined by Jim Orr and Lindsay Hamilton as we mark the return of the Scottish Cup this weekend by looking at two games from the past. One, a crucial league decider between two teams who now face each other tomorrow, and the other, arguably the mother of all cup upsets. Before we get started, we have this week's trivia question for you. Which Scottish team has the highest ground in terms of distance above sea level? We'll give you the answer at the end of the podcast. This weekend sees the resumption of the third round of the Scottish Cup, the round in which teams from the top flight enter the competition. While the draw may have been disappointing for neutrals looking forward to seeing plenty of derbies, there are two exceptions, as Ross County host Inverness Caledonian Thistle in Dingwall, and St Johnston travel to Dens Park to play their Tayside rivals Dundee. While the biggest ever Tayside derby match between these two sides occurred in the league instead of the cup, we're taking a trip back to April 1962 for a crucial clash that would have implications at both ends of the table. The 1961-62 season was highly competitive in the first division. As well as the two old firm sides, other teams were staking their claims for the title. These teams were Dunfermline Athletic, who were managed by Jock Steen, Kilmarnock, who were managed by Willie Waddle, and Dundee, who were managed by Bob Shankly, brother of the famous Liverpool manager, Bill. Bob Shankly had arrived at Dundee in 1959 from Third Lanark, having previously been in charge of Falkirk. Born in the Ayrshire coal mining village of Glen Buck, on the 25th of February 1910, Bob Shankly and his four brothers all played football for the local side Glenbuck Cherry Pickers. All five played professional football, with Bill famously turning out for Preston North End and Scotland. Bob became much better known for his exploits as a manager, despite turning out for clubs such as Glenbuck Cherry Pickers, Auchinleck Talbot, Alloa Athletic, and Falkirk. In the early 60s, his Dundee side was one of the finest in the country, featuring talent such as Ian Ewer, Andy Penman and Alan Gilzean. Shankly managed to pull off a real coup when he signed the great Gordon Smith from Hearts in 1961. Smith had been a member of Hibernian's famous five forward line for many years before moving to Hearts in 1959 where he helped the Jambos to the league championship in 1960. While many thought Smith would have been past it by the time he signed for Dundee, the skillful forward aged like fine wine, and he was still capable of wooing the crowds at Dens Park with his silky technique. Smith's experience combined with the talented youth and expertise of Shankly's management got the Dark Blues off to a brilliant start in the league. Within one week in November 1961, the Dees beat Rangers 5-1 at Ibrooks and came back from being 4-2 down against Wraith Rovers at Dens Park to win 5-4. A poor spell in February gave Shankly's team a scare, but he was able to stabilise the team 
and in their third last fixture, they beat their local rivals Dundee United 2-1 at Tannadice. A 2-0 win against St Mirren at Dens Park on the penultimate weekend put the Dark Blues in the driving seat going into the final week of the season. To beat Rangers to the league, all they had to do was travel to Muirton Park and get a result against their local rivals, St Johnston. While Dundee had been flying high in the league, the same could not be said for their rivals in Perth. Despite reaching the semi-finals of the League Cup, St Johnston had struggled for much of the season under the management of Bobby Brown. A dismal first half of the season saw the Saints drifting near the bottom of the table before a slight revival in the spring. In their third and second last matches, they defeated Partick Thistle 1-0 at home and third Lanark 2-1 at Cathkin Park. Going into their last game against Dundee, they sat in 14th place with 25 points. With Stirling Albion unable to move off the dreaded 18th place, they were already down, and another team would be guaranteed to join them. Saints were two points clear of St Mirren and Adrianians, and one point clear of Falkirk. Any one of the four could join the Beanos, and goal average could be a big factor in deciding who stayed up. If the Saints won, their safety would be guaranteed. Depending on other results, a draw or a 2-0 loss could have been enough to see them stay up at the expense of someone else. And if the motivation to stay up wasn't enough, they also had the carrot of being able to potentially ruin their rival's day. At the time, the Dundee derby was not as highly regarded as it is now, with Dundee fans seeing rivalries with United, St Johnson and also Aberdeen. The St Johnson defender, Jim Lachlan, who was due to play against Dundee in the final match, said, Funnily enough, back then we felt the games with Dundee United had more of an edge, but Dundee were the team everyone wanted to beat. The Saints team also featured a young Alec Ferguson, who had signed from Queen's Park as an amateur in 1960. He would spend four seasons at Muirton Park in total before moving on to Dunfermline Athletic in 1964. The crunch match would take place on 28th of April 1962. The UK number one single at the time was Wonderful Land by the Shadows, which would spend a total of eight weeks at the top spot. The biggest box office hit at the cinemas at the time was The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, starring James Stewart and John Wayne. In Scotland, the newspapers wrote of two govern anti-nuclear campaigners who were jailed for 30 days, Sterling Moss's recovery from his crash in the Easter Monday race at Goodwood, and actress Natalie Wood's divorce from her husband, Robert Wagner. Late that morning, Dundee travelled to Muirton Park to duke it out for the title. A victory for the Dees meant the title was theirs, but if Kilmarnock took points off Rangers at Ibrox, it would be Dundee's crown anyway. A draw or a win for the Saints would keep them up in the first division for another season. It was a wonderfully sunny spring day and Dundee fans flocked to Muirton Park expecting a coronation for their heroes, outnumbering the home fans greatly. In total over 25,000 people were in attendance for the biggest game in Scotland that day and a box office end to the league. The lineups for the teams that day were St Johnston, Billy Taylor, Charlie McFadgen, Jim Lachlan, Jim Little, Jim Ferguson, Frank Dunleavy, who was the captain, Alistair McIntyre, 
Jim Townsend, Matt Vitti, Alec Ferguson and Laurie Thompson. For Dundee it was Pat Linney, Alex Hamilton, Bobby Cox, the captain, Bobby Seath, Ian Ewer, Bobby Wishart, Gordon Smith, Andy Payneman, Alan Cousins, Alan Gilzean and Hugh Robertson. At 3pm, the game kicked off with St Johnston in their white change kit and Dundee in their traditional dark blue kit. The game was a tense affair and the home side had a great chance early on when Dunleavy had a chance to shoot at goal, but Pat Linney was equal to the shot. At the other end, Alan Gilzean had an effort saved by Taylor in the Saints net before St Johnston got their best chance of the half when a McIntyre free kick was headed towards the Dundee goal. Linney was able to make an acrobatic save and the score stayed at 0-0. Another attempt by the home side ended with Hamilton clearing the ball off the line. There was almost nothing between the two teams at this stage. The breakthrough came for the away team in the 24th minute. Bobby Seath passed to Gordon Smith who crossed the ball perfectly towards the head of Alan Gilzean, who was 10 yards out from Billy Taylor's goal. The header beat Taylor and hit the back of the net. St Johnston nil, Dundee won. St Johnston didn't let this setback get them down too much. Even though the 20,000 or so Dundee fans were in party mode, the Saints had played well so far and thought their side could get a goal playing the way they were. At half-time, the score was still 1-0 to Dundee, and while Bob Shankly would be encouraging his team to go for the kill, given Rangers were drawing 0-0 with Kilmarnock at Ibrooks, Bobby Brown would have to keep his team focused. The results coming in from across the country didn't augur well for his side. St Mirren were beating Dunfermline 3-1, Falkirk were beating Third Lanark 1-0, and Airdrie were beating Partick Thistle 1-0. As things stood, Falkirk would be safe for certain, with the unlucky team possibly being decided by goal average. The game restarted and the home team came flying out of the traps. The Saints had started the second half determined not to go down, but that determination turned into frustration when Lachlan and Thompson were booked for fouling Gordon Smith. Following this, the D's started to come into the game and in the 59th minute, Alan Gilzean was about to strike again. After taking the ball on a lovely run, he was dispossessed by McFadgen. But the Saints player didn't clear the ball away successfully, leaving Gilzean to strike the ball into the net from 12 yards. St Johnston nil, Dundee 2. And soon afterwards, Andy Kerr scored for Kilmarnock at Ibrooks to put them 1-0 up against Rangers. The Dark Blues were well on their way to clinching the title now. Knowing that another goal would see them relegated on goal average, the home side didn't let the heads go down. But with the Dark Blue heads held high, they were in no mood to show any mercy towards their Tayside rivals. The title was wrapped up in the 67th minute when Alan Gilzean turned provider for Andy Penman who fired the ball past Taylor from close range. St Johnston nil, 
Dundee 3. The dreaded third goal had come, and the Saints had just over 20 minutes to save their season with one goal. Alec Ferguson would have a goal disallowed for the Saints, and he would have been the toast of Perth if the referee hadn't cut it off. When the full-time whistle rang out at Muirton, Dundee were the champions of Scotland, and their jubilant fans invaded the pitch to congratulate their players. The trophy and the flag would be going back home along the A90 with them, and they didn't need Kelly to do them a favour at Ibrooks in the end, even though that match ended 1-1. Pat Linney would say of the Dark Blues' triumph, I remember it like it was yesterday, especially as our triumph was so unexpected. If you had said to me at the start of the season that we would be top four or five, then we would have settled for that. It was a stark contrast for the Perth side though. Their revival had come too late, and with all three of St Mirren, Falkirk and Airdrie winning, St Johnson would have needed at least one goal on the final day to stay up. Even though St Mirren and Airdrie finished on 25 points, alongside St Johnson, it was the Perth side who were relegated on goal average by 0.076 of a goal. Had the league been decided on goal difference, as it is now, St Mirren would have been relegated. But St Johnson could only rue their luck in the end. It wasn't all doom and gloom for St Johnson though. The following season they embarked upon a 19 game unbeaten streak and finished the second division champions with 55 points. Six more points than their promotion rivals, East Stirlingshire. As for Dundee, they would embark upon a European Cup run that only came to a halt against the mighty AC Milan, who would win the coveted trophy that season. Players such as Alan Gilzean and Ian Ewer would go on to play in England at Tottenham Hotspur and Arsenal respectively, as well as for Scotland. Bob Shankly had cemented his place in Dundee and indeed Scottish football folklore. Both he and Bobby Cox have stands at Dens Park named after them. Some 47 years after that fateful day at Muirton Park, the two sides would meet again to decide a title race. St Johnson were looking to secure promotion back to the top flight of Scottish football in 2009 after being relegated from the SPL back in 2002. They met at Dens Park and Steve Milne's goal in the second minute of the game was enough to settle the tie for Derek McInnes's men. For older Saints supporters like the then chairman Jeff Brown, who had stood on the Muirton terraces in disappointment all those years ago, this was to be the revenge as they gained promotion at the expense of their Tayside rivals. While it may not have been as grand a title, it was still enough for the proud pair supporters as they got one back at their old foes in Dundee. Last Tuesday night produced one of the most momentous upsets in the history of the Scottish Cup, as broader Rangers of the Highland League inflicted a 2-1 defeat on Heart of Midlothian. This is up there, or down there, depending upon your persuasion, with one of the Cup's most famous upsets, when Rangers were defeated by Berwick Rangers in 1967. To truly understand the magnitude of this defeat, we have to go back to May of 1964, when there was talk of league reconstruction. Rangers put forward a proposal to restructure the leagues, which would have meant that five clubs would have lost their league membership, one of them being Berwick Rangers. 
These clubs joined together and appealed against the plans in court, but the court ruled in Rangers' favour. With support from the Celtic board, the teams appealed to the court of session and the plans were dropped. Berwick Rangers had earned the reprieve and would continue to be members of the league. The Scottish Cup in season 1966-67 saw Berwick Rangers drawn at home against Rangers in the first round of the tournament. Rangers had won the cup the season prior to this and had not lost a first round tie since the 30th of January 1937 when they were beaten by Queen of the South. Nobody barring the most over-enthusiastic of Berwick Rangers fans gave the Northumberland Minnows a chance of overturning the mighty Glasgow side. The Glasgow Herald previewed the cup matches that weekend and said of this game, Anything other than a comfortable Rangers victory must be deemed a surprise. Cup fever gripped the town as the big day approached on the 28th of January 1967. As Berwick's left-back, Gordon Haig, described, After we had breakfast, we took a stroll through the town. We were invited into Woolworths of all places to have our pictures taken with some workers in the shop. They were all dressed in Berwick colours, wearing rosettes and things. The whole town seemed to be buzzing. On that day, I'm a believer, the Neil Diamond pen song by the Monkees was at number one in the UK singles chart. One man who was also a believer in his team's chances was Berwick's player manager, Jock Wallace. Playing in nets for the Borderers, he was in his first season in management and was looking to wind down his career at a club he had previously played for. Wallace put his team through intense training drills, inspired by his time in the British Army, where he served in the Malayan conflict of the early 1950s. Berwick had won their two preliminary round fixtures convincingly, beating Vale of Leithen 8-1 and Forfra Athletic 2-0 to qualify for the first round proper. This was all very well, but their opponents were second in the first division and contained many international players in their ranks. If Wallace and his men were going to pull off the cup shock, they would have to play the game of their lives. A crowd of over 13,000 crammed into Shieldfield Park on the 28th of January 1967 for what many expected to be a walkover for the Glasgow Giants. Scott Simon's Rangers team included John Gregg, Ronnie McKinnon, Willie Henderson, Davy Proven and Kai Johansson. When Eddie Thompson, the referee, began the match, it was the Glasgow team who immediately took control of things. Rangers won three corners inside the opening five minutes, with the Berwick defence doing well to hold for him. Willie Henderson appealed to the referee for a penalty after appearing to be brought down by Berwick's wing half, Jim Kilgannon, but the referee waved away the light blues appeals. More chances followed for Rangers, including Jock Wallace coming to the rescue when it looked like Jim Forrest was certain to score with a header. Berwick had their first real scoring chance not long afterwards. Were it not for Alex Smith clearing the ball over Norrie Martin's crossbar, Sam Reid would have put Berwick ahead. Alex Smith then went up the other end of the park and looked to have scored for certain until Doug Coots deflected the ball away for a corner. As the half-hour mark approached, Rangers were throwing the kitchen sink at the Berwick defence. 
They had taken 10 corner kicks at this point and their pressure had yet to pay off. In the 32nd minute, the unthinkable for the light blues happened. Kenny Dowds and George Christie of Berwick combined to feed the ball to Sammy Reid who blasted the ball off the post and into the net. There was little that Norrie Martin could do to stop the diminutive striker and suddenly Reid was overwhelmed by teammates and supporters alike on the field celebrating their goal. Berwick Rangers won, Rangers nil. Rangers were stunned by this goal and two minutes later George Christie passed up a fabulous chance to double Berwick's lead. He found himself through in goal and half hit a shot which Norrie Martin was able to save comfortably. Rangers had one more big chance before the end of the half when a John Gregg shot went just wide of Jock Wallace's goal, but that was the best the Glasgow side could do. At half time, the upset was on. When the teams came back out for the second half, Rangers were determined not to fall victim to a cup shock. They still had 45 minutes to do something about it, and with the calibre of players they had at their disposal, their fans would certainly be hoping for a turnaround. As it was, that turnaround wasn't materialised from anywhere. They still dominated play, but the Berwick defence was playing a blinder. Jock Wallace in particular was having a magnificent game. Everything the Rangers forwards could throw at him, he could match. In the 65th minute, with the Gers still losing to Berwick, more trouble was about to come their way after Willie Johnson collided with Jock Wallace. The Rangers physio David Kinnear immediately shouted for the stretcher and Johnson was replaced by Davy Wilson. Wilson had scored three goals against Berwick the last time the two teams had played in 1960 and no doubt some Berwick fans feared the worst when they saw him enter the field. Wilson almost got an equaliser soon after coming on when George McLean headed the ball to his feet but Jock Wallace smothered the ball and stopped what looked like a certain goal. McLean tried again soon after with a header and again Wallace was equal to it. Absolutely nothing was getting past the Berwick manager in their goal as time was becoming even more precious. Despite the pressure from Rangers, Berwick did manage to have their chances in the game. Alan Ainsley forced Norrie Martin into making a good save and then hit the post with another effort that surely would have settled the game at this point. John Gregg and George McLean had more attempts on goal for Rangers which were unsuccessful, and the Berwick fans were starting to dream big. With five minutes to go, George Christie managed to get himself through on goal and took a shot, only for Norrie Martin's foot to deflect the ball wide for a corner. Ninety minutes had come and gone, and the home fans were appealing to Eddie Thompson to blow for full time. Supposedly, John Gregg appealed to Thompson deep into injury time, asking for two more minutes, only to be told, I've already given you four. Thompson had seen enough, and the pitch was invaded by jubilant Berwick fans who immediately looked for the goalscorer Sammy Reid to parade him around on their shoulders. John Gregg very sportingly shook the hand of every Berwick player, including his old schoolmate Gordon Haig. Glenn Edwards of the Glasgow Herald pointed out that this was the first time in Rangers history that they had been beaten by lower league opposition in the Scottish Cup and continued 
Never in the history of Scottish football has there been a result to match this one. And because Rangers are Rangers, it will lead to serious repercussions. I am afraid I can see no bright future ahead for Rangers. When interviewed after the match, the victorious manager Jock Wallace revealed that he had played the second half having lost a contact lens and claimed they should have won 3-0, saying, We missed far easier chances than the one Sammy Reid scored from. Berwick-upon-Tweed turned into a black and gold party that night, and the throngs of Rangers supporters left in disbelief. As for goalscorer Sammy Reid, it was back to work at his job as a gear cutter on the Sunday morning to make up for the time off he had been given to train with the team during the week. Berwick's giant killing exploits were rewarded with a trip to Easter Road to play Hibernian in the next round. Although they lost 1-0 in front of 31,000 people, Ken Dowd had a goal disallowed and Jock Wallace saved a penalty, meaning they at least went down fighting. As for Rangers, this unthinkable result led to big changes at the club and repercussions like the Herald had predicted. Scott Simon would be forced upstairs to become general manager of the club, with Davy White coming in to replace him. George McLean and Jim Forrest were made scapegoats because of this result and never played for Rangers again, being sold to Dundee and Preston North End respectively. Known as Dandy during his playing career, George McLean said years later, They blamed Jim and I when we lost to Berwick. The next day the chairman came out and said Jim and I had to go. We did our best on the park and while it was one of those things that we were moved on, it was hard to take. This paved the way for Sandy Jardin to break through to the first team and forced Rangers to bolster their forward options the following summer by signing Alec Ferguson from Dunfermline Athletic. Rangers did manage to make the final of the Cup Winners' Cup in May 1967 but lost 1-0 to Bayern Munich. At that point, McLean and Forrest had not been properly replaced and Dave Smith argued that hastily jettisoning the forward pair cost them the final. As for Jock Wallace, he continued to play in goals for Berwick until 1969 when he hung up his gloves for good. Hearts manager John Harvey had been impressed by Wallace's coaching acumen and hired him for his staff at Tynecastle. It wouldn't be too long before Rangers came calling, and Willie Waddle hired Wallace as a coach not long after he joined Hearts. Wallace would go on to manage Rangers over two spells as well as having stints at Leicester City, Motherwell and Sevilla. Whenever you mention Scottish Cup upsets, this will be top of many people's lists alongside last week's match where Brora defeated Hearts 2-1, and also when Inverness Caledonian Thistle beat Celtic 3-1 in 1999. To find out more about that game, you can listen to episode 11, when I spoke to Mike Edwards of STV of his memories from that game. What's your ultimate Scottish Cup upset? You can get in touch by contacting me on Twitter at Andy underscore memories, or email me at andy.com dot care at scottishfootballmuseum.org.uk
www.thepodcast.co.uk and let us know. At the start of the episode, we asked you which Scottish team has the highest ground in terms of distance above sea level. The answer may surprise you. It's Clyde. While Clyde used to play their games at Shawfield and Rutherglen, the club moved to Broadwood Stadium in Cumbernauld in 1994 and have played there ever since. At 127 metres above sea level, it's three metres higher up than the Lanarkshire rivals Erdronian's Excelsior Stadium. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Scottish Football Citizen. Subscribe to us on your favourite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And join us again next week when we'll be looking back at more of the best of Scottish football from the past. If you'd like an extra football fix every Tuesday, you can subscribe to Football Memories Scotland's weekly newsletter, The Football Special, and receive an email full of excellent pictures and stories from days gone by. To find out more, email lindsay at lindsay.hamilton at scottishfootballmuseum.org.uk The Scottish Football Citizen is written, edited and produced by Andy Kerr for Football Memories Scotland in association with Alzheimer Scotland and the Scottish Football Museum. Additional contributions from Robert Harvey, Jim Orr, Lindsay Hamilton and Richard McBrearty. Additional material from the Glasgow Times, The Daily Record, The Courier, The Sporting Post, thedarkblues.co.uk, BBC Sports Scotland, The Glasgow Herald, Berwick Rangers FC and berwickrangers.net.